the two most important inventions of the 20th century were the solar panel and the nonviolent social movement. And I think taken together, they're what we have to kind of hope for in this century. Welcome to Cooler Earth, a podcast where we talk with those seeking solutions to the climate crises. These are the people leading the movement to keep this planet a livable one, and they're doing so in ways that ensure equity and justice for all people, specifically those who have been at the front lines of this crisis and disproportionately affected by climate impacts. How has the coronavirus pandemic and the renewed mass calls for racial justice around the world impacted and changed the way we do climate work? That is a question that many of us have been asking ourselves and the guiding question behind this, the fourth season of Cooler Earth. If you care about the climate crisis or have generally been paying attention to the climate movement over the past few decades, it's likely that you're more than familiar with Bill McKibben. He's the person responsible for the divestment campaign against fossil fuels, the founder of the first planet-wide grassroots climate change movement, and has been a powerful activist and a brilliant author. If you haven't read anything from him, I suggest that you do. You'll be better off for it. Earlier this year in May, we had Bill join us for a special webinar series we put together in response to the coronavirus lockdown as we all adjusted to life at home. We thought we would bring that conversation to you in this format as a brilliant way to kick off the fourth season of our podcast. The conversation, as with any time I read or hear Bill speak, left me with a renewed sense of purpose and a deep appreciation for the community of leaders and advocates worldwide fighting for a livable future for all of us. Today, I have the distinct honor and pleasure to welcome Bill McKibben um, here with us. Bill, I know how valuable your time is, so I wanted to start off by saying how much we appreciate um, you spending some of it with us today. Well, this um, is the most valuable thing I could be doing. So I just thank you for all your good work and, and everybody else here too. I know that this is a crew of people who are uh, hard at work on dealing with these issues. Um, we're trying, uh, but I appreciate that a lot. Um, and when I started writing your bio, I actually realized that I could take up the entire hour we have together, just lifting off um, everything that you have done in your life. Um, most people know you as a brilliant author, legendary activist and advocate for the climate, um, and a very powerful voice in this space. But I thought that maybe we could start off our conversation um, but having you lift, list off some highlights uh, from your resume uh, or tell us some of the things that you are most proud of. Oh, I mean, you know, I've, mostly I've just been doing this a long time. Um, I wrote the first book about climate change, a book called The End of Nature, back in 1989, which was so long ago that we still called it the greenhouse effect back then. Um, and I've pretty much kept at it for 31 years. So uh, I've pretty much been around for the whole public era of, of the climate story. There's a few scientists who uh, had been working before and are still around, uh, my friend Jim Hansen, for instance. But um, I, I think my main claim to anything is just longevity. That and the that and the fact that at a certain point I decided that um, writing more books about this probably wasn't enough and that we needed to do some organizing. So with some other people, I uh, started 350.org, which became the first sort of iteration of a global climate movement. And over the last decade or so, that's grown into the big splendid affair that we see now, thanks to the work of so many other people. Um, definitely. Do you have a particular seed story or a moment um, in your life where you decided to kind of dedicate your professional career to this uh, particular issue? Well, I started writing about it in a way because I was a journalist and I thought this was the most interesting story I, that nobody else was covering. It didn't take me long in the course of writing the book to understand that I, I wasn't any longer objective, i.e., 
I actually didn't want the planet to, you know, heat up and wither away. Uh, but it took me quite a while to figure out that um, we needed to do more than write articles and so on. We needed to organize to build power. If there was a moment, I guess, probably 20 years ago or so, I'd been in Bangladesh to do some reporting. Uh, Bangladesh, obviously a country that's going to uh, suffer dramatically um, uh, from climate change. The Bay of Bengal is on the rise. And so millions of people are being, you know, have to leave their homes. And the glaciers that, that, that feed the great river, the Brahmaputra, it defines Bangladesh, they're dwindling. But while I was there, they were having an acute problem, their first outbreak of a disease called dengue fever that the World Health Organization says will be the emergent disease of this century. As you know, it's spreading fast because uh, it is carried on the wings of mosquitoes that expand their range as the temperature and the humidity go up. Um, and because I was spending a lot of time in the slums in Bangladesh, I eventually got bit by the wrong mosquito myself. And I was as sick as you know I've ever been. Uh, I, my strong advice to people is don't get dengue fever. Um, but of course, I was strong and healthy going in, so I didn't die. Lots of people did die there. And I remember being in the kind of main clinic in Dhaka with thousands of people on cots in rows and just thinking to myself, man, is this unfair. I mean, when the UN tries to estimate how much carbon each country emits, there's 180 million people or something in Bangladesh, but you can barely even get a uh, number for them in carbon terms. They're just a rounding error. You know, people don't have cars. It's not a, and, and so when I got back to the States, yeah, I think it really struck me harder than it had before. The, uh, not just the stupidity of what we were doing, but the unbelievable injustice of it. Uh, the fact that those who had done the least to cause this problem were getting hit first and hardest. And it didn't seem enough anymore just to be writing and talking about this. Time to be organizing, time to be going to jail, time to be doing what one could to try and stand up to the fossil fuel industry. Absolutely. Um, and we certainly know that a lot of those inequalities and disproportionate impacts don't just happen in terms of the international scale of the problem, but also right here. Um, at home. And that's a lot of what we're seeing happen today. Um, as the coronavirus and the crisis has spread more, um, again, like with many crises, these are kind of like a magnifying glass um, that show us the worst in society, right? The social structures that are already not working well for so many of us and for so many communities. Um, so I wanted to also start this conversation by acknowledging a lot of what is in all of our minds um, and ask you, Bill, if there is a way that the current crisis has impacted or shifted um, your professional focus, and, and if so, in what ways? Well, so it's a good, good question, Maria. Um, I've had a lot of years to think about disaster and crisis. <laughs> And so uh, there's no silver lining to a pandemic like this. It's pain and trauma all the way down to the bottom. But if you're gonna go through that pain and trauma, you might as well try to learn a few things along the way. And I do think probably we've learned a few things here that are important. We'll see if they sink in or not. But it seems to me that lesson one is this sounds kind of trite and obvious, but uh, physical reality is real. You know, we live in a world of screens and uh, uh, it seems like everything's manipulable. And I think many people have come to think of the world that way. Uh, we live in a world where we think the economy, you know, is bigger than the planet instead of the other way around. Think about the words we use to describe our economy. You know, our economy is ailing, it's on the mend, it's in recovery, it's taken a blow, you know. Uh, but we've always taken the physical world very much for granted. Well, I've spent 30 years trying to convince people that physics and chemistry are real and that you can't wish them away and that there's no compromise or negotiation with them. 
And you know, the COVID microbe has done the same thing for biology. Doesn't matter how often our president stands up at the lectern and calls it a hoax or says that cases are going to drop to zero or it'll be gone by Easter or you know, whatever his latest thing is. None of that actually has the slightest effect on the microbe. If the microbe says stand six feet apart, then stand six feet apart. I mean, you know, the biology sets the limits here just as chemistry and physics does. So that's lesson one. Lesson two for me, I think, is that speed really matters. Um, you know, I think it's incredibly illustrative that the US and South Korea learned about coronavirus on the same day in January. That's when we each had our first case. And what did the South Koreans do? They went right to work. Uh, modest disruptions of their society. No big gatherings. We're going to test everybody. The last five or six days, I think there have been no new cases in South Korea. What did the U.S. do? We, not a damn thing. Uh, we spent all of February pretending in our kind of fantasy way that nothing bad would happen with the president who wasn't bothering to mobilize the forces to get anything done. Uh, more concerned that somehow he might scare the stock market, you know, than, than anything else. So inevitably, we ended up in a horrible place. Now we have to disrupt our economy far more than the South Koreans ever did. They never locked everything down. And the damage is going to be enormous economically. More to the point, even having done that, we're still going to lose hundreds of thousands of human beings. I mean, you know, in New York, they were stacking bodies in refrigerated tractor trailer trucks because there wasn't room for them in the morgue. That's what happens when you delay, and it's a fairly perfect analog to what we've done or not done with climate change. 30 years ago, modest interventions, a modest price on carbon would have been enough to set us on a very different course. You know, it would have steered the ship of our economy two or three degrees to starboard, and 30 years later, we would have sailed into a different ocean. But we didn't do that, thanks to the oil industry and their endless campaign of disinformation. We just kept going straight ahead, accelerating. Human beings have produced more CO2 since 1990 than in all of human history before. And so the result was exactly the same as with the virus. Now we're at a point where we still have to move really fast. As you know, the IPCC has given us until about 2030 to make fundamental transformations. But now those changes are going to necessarily be somewhat disruptive. And even if we make them, we're still going to deal with huge trauma. Uh, we're way past the point where we can stop global warming. Uh, all we can do is try to slow it down and limit it. But you know, even that's very difficult. It was only 13, 14 weeks ago that all of us were watching in slack-jawed horror as the continent of Australia burnt to the ground. You know, uh, We're past the point where we get off easy. So physical reality matters, speed matters. And I think the third lesson for me is social solidarity matters a lot. Um, I grew up in the shadow of, political shadow of Ronald Reagan long before your time. But you live in that world too, a world that he convinced that markets solved all problems, uh, that our job was just to pursue individual self-interest, and that government was, as he put it, the problem, not the solution. In fact, the laugh line he always used was, the nine scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Ha, ha, ha. But it turns out those aren't the scariest words. I mean, the scariest words in the English language are, sorry, we've run out of ventilators, or the hillside behind your house just caught on fire, you know, and you can't solve those problems by yourself. Those are the problems you have to solve by coming together with other people, by taking the kind of effective action that only governments can take, and we're finding out now what happens when we have destroyed or degraded that system and that way of thinking. So hopefully, as we emerge from this, those sort of three meta narratives will change some. Um, we'll be more conversant with physical reality, less tolerant of delay, and more convinced that we're all in this together. And 
And you know, we can talk a great deal about all the policies that follow, but the policies are kind of uh, detailed implementations of, I think, those basic ideas. Absolutely. Um, I think one thing that you just say specifically was it, as it pertains to the example of the United States and South Korea, we saw them, um, is this idea of agency, right? And equally with the climate crisis, it's not as though it's going to be a cliff, right? That we're going to fall off and everything is just going to um, unramble. It's really a slope. And everything that we do and the speed at which we do it, like you just said, is going to translate directly um, into human suffering or the stifling of that suffering. And I think that's part of the story that we often get a little bit wrong um, when we try to convey the urgency to act is the fact that it's not zero sum, right? And agency matters quite a lot. Um, I'm also fascinated by that last point that you see on human solidarity um, and the need to act collectively, right? I think that's going to require a massive mindset shift on all of us to unlearn a lot of those things that we have been taught uh, for so long about individualism and agency and the power of the economy. Um, I wonder how you think we will be better positioned after this to have that collective shift or in what ways, if any, we have seen kind of the opposite also happen. Well, it's a very good question and we don't know the answer. I mean, these kind of things can swing both ways uh, and, and truthfully without getting uh, particularly uh, partisan about it. I mean, I think we're going to have to, I mean, I, I think November is going to be the test of what way things are swinging in this country. Do we want to keep going down the same road we were going down or do we want to stop and reevaluate and, and move back towards some other uh, way of thinking about ourselves as a nation? Uh, that's why it seems to me it's a you know election of uh, unprecedented importance. Uh, already was even before the coronavirus, but now couldn't be clearer. Um, and and so you know we don't know. I mean, there's an understandable impulse to just want to set the pins up in the bowling alley again and get back to normal, but normal was already kind of a crisis, a crisis of rising temperature and a crisis of rapidly rising inequality. And, and those are things that over the long run, we clearly can't tolerate, you know, just it, it won't work. Absolutely. Um, one last thing that I wanted to talk about this particular moment we're living through is something we see happen quite a lot. Um, and it's a little around the partisanship of the issue. And it's whenever a terrible tragedy strikes, and people understandably want to talk about not just the now, but what this means in general, right? So when we start talking about stimulus dollars going towards climate solutions and needing to take a holistic view of what a rebuilding looks like, um, there's quite swiftly and often this reaction of this isn't the time to talk about that, right? Or as you tweeted ahead of Congress, um, getting together a stimulus package the first time around, um, people are using this for political, for their own political purposes. Um, how do you, have you personally um, dealt with that narrative and, and made it understood that this is precisely the time that we need to be talking about this? Well, look, the, I mean, the basic underlying structure of this debate for the last 30 years has been the same. It's been science, reason, human compassion, everything else versus the fossil fuel industry. And that never changes. That's exactly what's going on right now. The fossil fuel industry, which remember, basically owns one of our political parties and controls so much of the narrative uh, uh, always says, you know, wh wh whatever the occasion is, it's always a reason to help them, to give them more subsidies, to deregulate more things, to whatever. What's interesting this time is um, they're in such a world of hurt that I'm not sure even all their political patronage can get them out of it. You know, the fossil fuel industry has been in decline for the last decade. Uh, it's underperformed every other part of our economy. That's 
that's one reason that people who took our, you know, uh, uh, advice and divested from fossil fuels seven or eight or nine years ago, uh, occasionally write to say thank you now, because there was a lot of money that they, uh, you know, didn't lose as a result. Um, um, so they've been under, the, the reason that they've been in decline is twofold. One, their product is destroying the planet. And eventually this leads to regulatory pressure and change and so on, which they've been trying very hard to fend off, but you know, there are limits to that ability. And two, people have come up with a better, cheaper, cleaner alternative to the same product. You can make power now from the sun and the wind and you can do it more cheaply. Uh, day before yesterday, uh, Abu Dhabi, signed a tender for the biggest solar array on planet Earth, it's going to be delivering power at just over one cent a kilowatt hour. Okay, um, I'm not sure anyone's ever delivered power at those kind of prices through any possible <laughs> method before. Uh, you know, obviously Abu Dhabi is the single best place to be doing this, but it's, you know, the price of a solar panel has dropped 90% in the last decade. This is now the cheapest way to do this almost everywhere on earth and the wind turbine the same. So the oil industry is in deep trouble now. And the one thing they have left is political juice, you know, uh, 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 a century's worth of, of political patronage to call on and they're calling on it hard. And I, my guess is that, that the US is gonna be one of the last places where it's possible to do that. We're already seeing other countries uh, adopt Green New Deal-like strategies for working there and, and beginning to put real limits on the fossil fuel industry. I saw yesterday, for instance, that the French government had announced that as one condition of its bailout of Air France, uh, it would no longer be allowed to fly on routes that had viable train connections going between those two cities. Um, that's the kind of pressure that's just going to keep growing. But that's why you can expect the fossil fuel industry to throw everything they have into November's elections, um, because they know that the same fate awaits them in one form or another the minute that their biggest political protectors are out of power. Um, absolutely. I think one of my favorite lines that I've heard you say is that over the past 10 years, engineers have done their job as well as politicians have done theirs poorly. Um, and it just goes to speak that we kind of already have the technological fixes or the um, what would be called the vaccine uh, to the coronavirus in terms of solving some of these um, energy and climate issues. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on this idea of peak oil or the theorized point in which the maximum rate of extraction of petroleum would have been reached. Um, we're certainly seeing the oil industry in, in a big crisis now, not only because of the plummeting or their prices a couple of weeks back, uh, but because we don't know how long this, this crisis is going to shock the industry at large. Um, have you been thinking about this at all and what would the significance be um, to the larger transition? Sure. You know, we used to think, the I would say even as late as a year or two ago, people's assumptions were that peak oil consumption would be hit if you were very optimistic sometime in the early to mid 2020s. And if you were the oil companies and hoping uh, uh, that, you know, it would be 2040 or 2050. I think now it's very clear that peak oil consumption was almost certainly on this planet in 2019. Um, the IEA said last week that uh, we think oil consumption is down at least 10% this year because of the COVID crisis. Now that'll bounce back eventually. You know, people will begin using energy again as we bring economies back online. But as that 10% as we grow back that thing, a, a big increment of it's going to be taken by renewable energy just because it gets cheaper and cheaper uh, all the time. Um, last yesterday, the day before, uh, it, it emerged that the U.S. has generated more power from renewable energy than from coal for the last 40 days. We've never had a stretch like that since the invention of electricity in this country. And, and 
it's a pretty good sign of, of you know, where people are finding the cheapest, quickest to dispatch power in the uh, planet, you know. Um, so I think we've seen peak oil. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have to worry about climate change because uh, the question will be how fast does oil consumption go down? And if it takes a long time, um, um, you know, then we're screwed. So the most important thing about being at peak oil consumption is it begins to weaken or helps weaken the already reduced political power of the fossil fuel industry. Their ability to control events weakens as people realize there's no growth left in those industries. That we're, you know, that we're never going back to the glory days when Exxon ruled the world. And as people realize that, their ability to control outcomes, to control the political game slips, and that helps enormously everybody who's fighting to you know build renewable energy everybody who's fighting for retrofits and insulation and conservation and for you know every useful thing on the planet um definitely and you have spoken i mean as we know it's not enough to have the oil industry decline as long as we don't have the growth and expansion of something to replace it um, something that ideally would also advance um, goals of equity and increase justice in the united states so um, we've had a few questions come up in the chat and maybe i'll ask this now um, is there a way in which you envision this particular moment and as we see or expect um, massive government spending to best address some of these issues and best position us to make this transition quickly? Yeah, I mean, I think it's such an interesting moment because um, one of the things that's very clear is we're going to come out of, the, or we're, I mean, come out of, I mean, I, I don't know why we're even talking about coming out of the coronavirus crisis, the number of cases going up, you know, but, but, we're going to be dealing with massive unemployment in this society on a scale we, the New York Times this morning said on a scale we haven't seen since the Great Depression. Well, that's an interesting historical parallel. What did we do in the Great Depression? Uh, well, thank heaven, here came along Franklin Delano Roosevelt and with him the New Deal and which was, you know, largely an endless scheme, an endless set of schemes for putting people back to work, doing one thing or another. The Works Project Administration, the Civilian Conservation Corps, blah blah blah. Uh, you know, eventually World War II. <laughs> um, um, not that he wanted that, but if you look around our world now and ask yourself what task exists large enough to soak up large numbers of bodies in need of work. I think the only obvious answer is the transition off fossil fuel and onto renewable energy. Because the price of these technologies has dropped so far, and because when you install them, you get real savings, you know, um, um, once you put the insulation in, uh, you know, there's this kind of predictable savings in the amount that you have to pay for your energy bill, thus allowing, you know, clever financing of the whole project in the first place. Um, because of those things, uh, I think it's the, you know, this is the obvious place to turn. Uh, we need an army of people doing that work. And the good news about renewable energy is, you know, it's labor intensive, not capital intensive. Uh, solar panels do not erect themselves, you know. Somebody has to get up on the roof and pound them in. Your house will not insulate itself and you're not gonna put it on a boat and send it to China to get it done. It's gonna get done here if it gets done at all. So these are the reasons why the, the sort of set of policies and ideas that are loosely grouped together under the Green New Deal uh, uh, are, are of such importance. And it's why it's so interesting to see countries like South Korea and Germany taking a kind of Green New Deal template uh, as their ticket out of this new depression. 
Um, and you often talk about two levers that we still have to pull on um, in terms of the oil and gas industry, and those are political and financial. And we've talked a little bit about both of them, uh, but I think it's it's critical to address the fact that oil and gas are still massively subsidized, um, specifically in this country. And so what does that mean in terms of the barriers to this transition or how is that going to need to, to change, frankly? Yeah, so let's talk about those two levers. Well, the first is the political and clearly uh, everything will get much easier if we had an administration and a Congress in Washington that didn't view climate science as a hoax, uh, that you know wasn't in utter thrall to the oil industry. It's not like if you elect Joe Biden, you know, everything's going to turn around overnight. And it's not like the Democrats aren't pretty scared of the oil industry too. You know, they are. But much changes and much becomes possible. However, even under the best circumstances political systems move slowly, and even under the best circumstances, uh, Washington is no longer sort of dominates the whole world, you know, uh, for better or for worse, probably mostly for better. Uh, so you have to be able to do this political trick in country after country. That's the reason that working hard on this financial lever, as you put it, is also really important. Um, you know, the financial industry, I wrote a long piece for the New Yorker last summer that kind of laid this case out, a uh, piece with the uh, lengthy title, uh, Money is the Oxygen on Which the Fires of Global Warming Burned. Okay. And uh, um, the, the, the point of the piece was that the big banks, asset managers, and insurance companies are the pipeline that, taught, that flows money directly to the fossil fuel industry. And if you could crimp that pipeline, that's another powerful way to crimp their political power. This grew out of the work that we've been doing around divestment of fossil fuels. And we're up to $14 trillion in endowments and portfolios that have divested in part or in whole from fossil fuel. And that's been very effective. So now we move one ring out and start to put pressure on those banks and asset managers. And that lever is really attractive to pull because if you can pull it, it's not easy. These are the pillars of global capital. You know, you were talking about powerful people. But if you can pull them, A, change comes quickly. Markets react with enormous speed to new information and data. They're not like Congresses or parliaments that react slowly. And B, they react globally. Washington may not rule the world anymore, but Wall Street still kind of does, okay? And so that's why we've worked so hard and begun to show some results. Um, among asset managers, say, the 600 pound gorilla is BlackRock. Uh, they're the biggest box of money on planet Earth. Something like $1 in eight on our planet sits in their digital vaults someplace. Okay. So it was not insignificant in January when its CEO, Larry Fink, uh, issued a set of letters saying climate change is the most important financial consideration henceforth, and everything we do will be informed by our response to it. Did he mean it? We'll know more in you know the next few months because we'll see things like how they vote on uh, shareholder resolutions this board meeting season and you know shareholder meeting season and that kind of thing. But clearly they've begun to move in that direction. Thanks. Uh, I got arrested in January with a few other people at the headquarter at the Chase Bank branch nearest the nation's capital in an effort to kind of launch this campaign against Chase Bank, because it's the biggest fossil fuel lender on earth. Since the Paris Climate Accords were signed, they've spent a quarter trillion dollars off to the fossil fuel industry. I mean, that sabotage of the Paris Accords is as great as Donald Trump's, you know? So 
the idea of, you know, we, we got arrested to launch this campaign, which was supposed to, <laughs> on Earth Day, uh, have people sitting in in thousands of chase branches around the country. Well, obviously, you know, that wasn't going to happen. Um, um, but the pressure has been relentless anyway. And we got a not insignificant victory last week. Chase Bank announced what seems like a kind of minor personnel change, if you weren't thinking about it. Uh, they demoted their longtime lead independent director, a man named Lee Raymond. That was significant because Lee Raymond was the same fellow who had been president and then CEO of Exxon in the 80s and 90s, precisely in the years when they were pioneering corporate climate denial. Um, um, and then he went off to run the board of the biggest fossil fuel lender in the world. So the idea that he's not gonna be doing that anymore, thanks to powerful pressure from activist movements, uh, the final straw came when the controller of the city of New York, Scott Stringer, announced that he'd be voting the city's pension fund shares against Mr. Raymond. That was a kind of, for those of us who've been following this story a long time, that was a kind of uh, historical moment, a kind of interesting turning point. Absolutely. And I encourage everyone to go check out your writings in The New Yorker about this, because it really lays out the, the historical case and the significance of, of this in particular. Yeah, um, I and they... I write this people. I write this climate newsletter every week for the New Yorker, which people are welcome to. It's free, I think, so people are welcome to go uh, find it if they're interested. And you certainly should, because it is phenomenal. Um, and this lends me to ask my next question, which was around the role of civil disobedience. Um, as you mentioned, there was a, a strategized campaign planned that is now having to be rethought um, because of what we're going through right now. But I wonder, is there, has there been a shift in the way you conceive of the role of civil disobedience um, through your career and where you stand on it now? Um, and how do have you rethought of that in this new online reality that we find ourselves? Well, it's a little hard to know yet about exactly how to do all this online. We're all, you know, looking around and figuring it out. One hopes that that won't last forever because civil disobedience is a um, remarkable thing. Uh, the last chapter of my last book, Falter, uh, argued that the two most important inventions of the 20th century were the solar panel and the nonviolent social movement. And I think taken together, they're what we have to kind of hope for in this century. Um, you know, it's almost as if nonviolence is a kind of technology itself, uh, pioneered by the suffragists, by Gandhi, by Dr. King, by millions and millions of other people whose names we don't know or have forgotten. And what they figured out was a kind of technology to allow the small and the many to stand up to the mighty and the few, which is precisely the position that we're in. You know? So I think it's been very good to see how that power works. You know, we used it, for instance, you don't want to use it all the time, like any tool, civil disobedience, uh, you know, grows dull figuratively and literally if you use it too often. But I think we all used it to good effect, for instance, at the start of the fight about the Keystone Pipeline in 2011. 1,200 and some people went to jail, more than had gone to jail about anything in this country for a long time. And it put that fight on the map. And the reason that was important was not only the 800,000 barrels of oil a day that we've kept in the ground for the last decade, but the fact that people showed that it was possible to stand up to big oil, something no one had sort of known before. And as a result, um, now everybody fights everything. No one builds a frack well, a coal mine, uh, a LNG port, anything for free anymore. It's always a fight and that's good. Sometimes actually a surprising amount of the time we win those fights. There are a ton of pipelines that never got built, a ton of coal ports that never got built, a ton, you know, all over the world. Even when we lose those fights, we, it's a good thing to do them because you know delay is our friend here too. You slow something down for two or three years. Well, that's two or three years where 
the engineers dropped the price of a solar panel another 20 or 30 percent and the spreadsheet looks that much worse by the end of it you know so uh, such credit to the people who have fought those fights and we're going to need to fight more of them it's one of the few things and i try not to get angry too often but one of the things that really made me angry was to watch the oil industry trying to use the pandemic as a cover to go about its business uh you know we've stopped the keystone pipeline for more than a decade but the minute that the coronavirus hit uh the company building it announced that it was going to um send workers from around the country, probably many of them carrying this virus, into rural areas with bad healthcare systems and on the edge of Indian reservations where populations of 90% of people have died of pandemics over the last 500 years. Um, and they were going to do it because they knew we couldn't stop them. We knew that they knew that we have 35,000 people trained up to do civil disobedience against that pipeline if it ever construction ever started. But we're not going to go out and do that. We're not going right. to people there because, you know, what are you going to do? Send people to jail with the possibility that they're bringing a germ inside a jail where people have no chance at social distancing, where, you know, you, you know, you'd just be killing people. And, and so they're trying to do it. Uh, happily, um, we got a good federal court ruling uh, a few days ago that seems to be slowing down that work. Uh, I still think the Keystone Pipeline may never get built, but man, even if it does, that's been the most worthwhile struggle I've ever gotten to be a part of. Um, Bill, certainly. And I think you are starting to talk about the, the power of people and really the power of this movement. Um, and this is something I wanted to, to get into talking with you. Uh, this is a movement that is going through what I think is so exciting now. Um, it looks a lot more like the world looks in terms of representation. Um, and for the many of us that are trying uh, to work on this movement, to be a part or to get engaged in several ways. Um, I wanted to do maybe a little bit of introspection um, and get your thoughts on, on why it is that is so important that intersectionality is intrinsically a part of the movement and a part of all solutions. Um, I don't think it has historically always been the case, but I think more and more we recognize it as such now. Um, so, so what are your thoughts here and what do you say to people who are either unable or unwilling to recognize this need to tackle overlapping um, injustices and issues together? Well, I think it's been one of the great uh, parts of things like the Green New Deal is understanding that you don't get the luxury of just dealing with one little part of this at a time. Maybe if we'd started 30 years ago, we could have. You just put a little tax on carbon and, you know, things get better and so on. Um, and then you kick the other problems down the road. Where maybe it's better that, you know, now we're having to deal with things all at once. And what that means is understanding, you know, um, um, that we need everybody doing it. The good news is that people in frontline communities and indigenous communities are basically now leading the climate fight. Uh, I've spent the last five or six years kind of trying my best to sort of step back and use uh, whatever platform I have to highlight those leaders uh, and bring them forward. And it's really been fun to watch. You know, one thing I get to do every week in this thing in The New Yorker is a thing called passing the mic, where I just find someone from, and so far, everybody who, I think every single person, I haven't, someone told me this yesterday, uh, every single person's either been a person of color or a woman, uh, you know, th this week, it's a wonderful um, uh, uh, Vanessa Hauk from uh, Univision, the Spanish language TV channel, who uh, runs their environmental show but and also anchors the weekend news and also was the first climate journalist ever chosen to be asking questions at a presidential debate and one of the things that i the first question i asked her was to explain something i've known but i don't think most people know it when you poll americans the group of americans that cares the most about climate change and by a fairly large margin is latinx americans um uh, and second most is African-Americans. People have this idea that the environmental movement is kind of rich white people, but in fact, rich white people tend to be kind of the problem. I mean, if you look at the polling and the voting and all of that, 
um, you know, that might be more or less, you know, where the difficulty lies. So, uh, uh, you know, she's, as, as Vanessa said, look, uh, you know, uh, we come from and have family in places where, you know, people are dying from climate change. Who gets to do the work we are outdoors all day, you know? That's us. Uh, of course, people care about it and understand it and, and, and so on. And I think that's really been powerfully important development. I think above all, the rise of indigenous leadership in the climate movement's been maybe the most beautiful story of the last decade. You know, people saw a standing rock and the encampments there and were amazed, but I wasn't amazed at all because I've known that uh, uh, these are leaders for a long time. They're the people I've been working with. And I think that that, and not just here, by the way, but in South America, in Pacific, in South Pacific, in uh, Australasia, in Africa, everywhere, you know, indigenous people playing a huge role. And, and I think that that's really important for two reasons. One, practical, you know, when we exiled indigenous people, uh, uh, we often stuck them on places that seemed at the time worthless, but now turn out to be on top of large deposits of, of hydrocarbons or astride the pipeline routes you'd need to get them to market. And for another reason that's sort of more metaphysical, there's something useful about the fact that the oldest wisdom traditions on the planet uh, and the newest wisdom traditions on the planet are kind of synced up. The view from the sweat lodge and the view from the satellite and the supercomputer are not that far apart. And what they tend to be telling us is that the view that most of the rest of us hold, this view of like endless economic growth, you know, on and on and on, is kind of nonsense, you know, and that we'd better learn different ways of, of living on the planet. So I'm glad for your question and think that it's really just right. Uh, uh, you know, this is, this is, um, this is what we need to be doing as a movement. Um, and let me say, it's, it's one of the things I admire the most about you, because I think you, you not only talk about passing the mic, quote unquote, uh, but you actually do it. Um, and that is refreshing and it's brilliant to see. Um, I found myself thinking back on a line that you wrote for a recent Rolling Stone piece, uh, where you tell a story where your daughter looks at you and says, I think you should probably be less famous in the years ahead. Um, and you agree, not because your work is any less relevant, but because the movement needs less leaders as heads and more people engaged in doing the work. Um, I'm curious if you had, for any of us listening and here, any reflections on, on you on how to show up best um, as an ally to raise those voices and to be the best that you can be for this movement? Well, I just, I mean, for me, it's just, that's the fun part, you know? All I really ever wanted to see was a big climate movement. And, you know, we started, when we started 350, that was a kind of first iteration of things. And there was a sense that we had to kind of will a climate movement into being, you know? Um, there were lots of people who were concerned about this, but there hadn't yet been a kind of way for it to really come together in a mass way. But now, man, it's grown like topsy. Um, it's beautiful to watch. So what a pleasure to see uh, the, you know, that all the kids who are doing campus fossil fuel divestment, you know, Naomi Klein and I kind of started this divestment thing a decade ago, but all the kids in college who did it when they graduated wanted to keep working on this stuff. So what did they do? They formed the Sunrise Movement and, and promulgated the Green New Deal. Uh, you know, what fun to watch people, young leaders like Varshini Prakash, who, you know, divested UMass Amherst when she was in college and then rounded up AOC to, you know, be the face of the Green New Deal. What fun to see Extinction Rebellion come of age in, you know, Europe and take these ideas about civil disobedience in new directions. What fun above all to see all the high school kids and junior high kids and things emerge. Uh, you know, uh, Greta Thunberg's magnificent and it's been a great pleasure to get to know her. And, and by the way, very good to be able to report that both she and her dad seem to be recovering from coronavirus pretty easily and well now. Um, but there's 10,000 Greta Thunbergs all over the world, you know, 
the number of young people who are working on this stuff is amazing. I spent much of October writing college recommendations for people I think of as kind of, you know, just real colleagues in this work. They just happen to be 17, you know? So it's really good to see. The only thing I worry about any of that is that adults are going to see all that action and think that it's okay to offload the greatest problem the world ever faced onto the shoulders of high school sophomores. And that's not okay. Uh, they playing a huge role in raging consciousness, but they can't vote and they don't have credit cards. And so the rest of us better, you know, do our part too. None of this is to say, and this is the hard part, that we are going to win this fight. Um, we don't know. It's not like other fights because it's a timed test. And if we don't win it soon, we don't win it. And we're obviously not going to win it outright, you know. Uh, we've already seen hideous damage, um, and we'll see a lot more. We found out yesterday that April was the warmest April ever measured on this planet. There's a 75% chance that 2020 will be the hottest year on record, and that's in a year without an El Nino. So it's a clear sign that things are getting accelerating and getting more out of control. Um, um, so we've got a huge amount of work to do and a narrow window of time in which to do it. Here's what I'd say to people. Uh, you're not going to be at this work forever. If we haven't made huge progress by 2030, then we might as well all, you know, we can go do something else in whatever time we have left because our window of leverage will have been lost. The, you know, climate scientists, the IPCC told us, that if we haven't cut carbon emissions in half by 2030, then our chances of hitting the Paris targets are essentially nil. So let's get after it. Let's all out for the next 10 years and see what we can do and then reevaluate and reassess about what's worth going on. Um, definitely. Another thing that I think a lot about when I was mentioning the introspection of the movement and how we can best show up um, and precisely avert these consequences that you say and act quickly and fast um, is a bit of the fracturing that we see within the movement itself. Um, and, and this very tragic idea of us imposing purity tests on each other or, or kind of fracturing in ways that perhaps don't serve the overwhelming goals that we face today. Um, how do you go about kind of dealing with that? Or what advice do you have for the rest of us um, in, in how to mitigate some of that? So the most recent example of this was this movie, uh, Michael Moore's The Planet of the Humans that came out on YouTube. And I was really worried about it for a little while. Like, was this going to split everything apart? I think maybe not. Um, the debunking of it has been so thorough and deep. I, I, there, I'm not sure there's ever been a cultural product more actively debunked by more people in more places. Someone sent me a day by day, it's like 170 written out essays and podcasts and movies and blah, blah, just explaining the endless factual idiocy of this thing. Um, that I think maybe it may almost have a unifying, as much of a unifying as a dividing effect. We shall see. That may mean that may be uh, that may be wishful thinking, but let's hope. Um, um, we, I, I think, in the broadest terms, we need as unified and broad a movement as possible in order to do the thing that's most important which is to stand up and break the political power of the fossil fuel industry. And once, once that's happened, then there's room. I mean, it's not like we haven't known for a long time what all the policies are that are kind of required to deal with the situation we're in. You know, they range from prices on carbon to big support for renewables, to keep it in the ground policies, to, you know, there's a, it's not for lack of those that's the problem. It's that we haven't been able to get them done over the dead weight imposed by the coal and oil and gas industry. So that's why it always seems to me that 
our job is to try and build that movement larger. Um, again, whether we can do it in time or not is not, I mean, we don't know. We know completely that 75 years from now, the world will run on sun and wind because it's cheap and clean. But if we keep going at the pace we're going at the moment, the world that runs on sun and wind will be a broken world. So our job is to speed up that transition. That's what movements in the end are about. And speeding up that transition is so key. And that's why it's so great to say, I'm just looking at the kind of chat and the question and answer thing and just seeing the hundreds of great ideas that people have for how to do that. Those are all super important and good and interesting ideas. And, and, and we need to keep at them. <clears throat> but until we have some, until the balance of power has fundamentally shifted here, it will be difficult to apply those answers at the speed that we need to go. You know? Maybe coming out of the coronavirus crisis, we'll be able to make some more progress on some of the things that seemed really hard even a few months ago. We understand more about the folly of a hugely centralized agriculture system than we did right. Few months ago. We know that you can't have cities that don't have good bike paths and things anymore because you know, it, it, it's going to require that as we come out of it. Uh, on and on and on. So uh, everybody should keep at it. We're making progress. We just need to make it a little faster. The world is way outside its comfort zone. So we need to be outside ours, which means. Yes, you have your particular answer that you think is most important, that's good, and work on it, but also come together with others in those moments when it's possible as a movement as a whole to make big progress. On the day when we take on Chase Bank or BlackRock or the Keystone Pipeline or whatever it is, and then go back to work on carbon pricing and soil sequestration and you know, uh, all those other things but there do need to be some decisive movement moments along the way. Definitely. And I think that's, that's what we call the yes and approach to climate solutions, that we shouldn't be kind of detracting from one another or fighting over these things because the reality is we're actually going to need all of them. Um, I do want to say, Bill, I, I truly admire the grace which with you handled and addressed the lies and deception um, in that film. And I know that cannot have been easy. Uh, but, but I appreciated your responses and your thoughtfulness. Um, and maybe I can't believe our hour is almost up, uh, but in closing, I wanted to end with a question. Um, what is one thing that you would like to go back and tell your younger self about movement building, organizing, or particularly storytelling uh, that could serve some guidance to those entering the fray today? Maria, it's a great question. And by the way, you're very good at this. Uh, uh, Thank you. <laughs> your next career is, you know, talk show host. So um, <laughs> um, I think it took me a long time, and I think it took the movement a long time, to understand that as important as uh, individual action is, it's not exactly the way that we're going to solve this crisis we're way past the point where you can make the math work one Prius at a time. So I think my mantra in recent years has become the most important thing an individual can do is be a little less of an individual and join together with others in movements large enough to make change. We don't need everybody in the same place. We don't need 51% of people all the time. We do need some strong segment of the population really engaged in this fight and working hard. I appreciate that answer. And I think it gives a lot of perspective uh, to some of us that find ourselves sometimes feeling like we are we're beating down against a wall that's unmovable because we focus too often on, on those that are the problem instead of realizing that there's so many people who want to become a part of the solutions. Um, so Bill, I cannot tell you enough how much of a joy it is to, to speak with you and, and how lucky we are to have you, not just on our webinar today, but in general um, in the movement and, and to have your intellects as well. 
Um, we have a couple minutes left. Uh, if there's anything else that you want to kind of tell us about the work that you're doing currently or, or some of the things that you wish more people um, got engaged with right now. No, I think it's fine for everybody to take a break from Zoom for even a few minutes. And just let me say thank you to everybody who was there and to you. And, um, you know, uh, my mantra again is always on we go, you know, um, as long as we keep moving forward and ever faster and ever bigger, then at least we've got a chance. And at this point, a chance is all we can ask for. So thank you very much for your good work, friend. Bill, thank you and stay well. All right. Take care. Bye. Cooler Earth is made by Amanda Griffiths, Christian Morris, and me, Maria Virginia Orlano, and it's a project of Climate Exchange. To learn more about the work we do, go to climateexchange.org. That is C-L-I-M-A-T-E dash X-C-H-A-N-G-E dot org. And if you want to financially support our work, you can either donate to our website directly or go to carbonraffle.org to learn more about our largest annual fundraiser. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you all stay safe and healthy. Until next time, 